Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Mark 5, 21 through 43. It's a tale of two daughters. And you'll remember that we've made a shift from four parables In Mark chapter 4, where we had the parable of the sower, the lamp, the seed growing, the seed multiplying, as Jesus was explaining the principles of the kingdom to his disciples, and then we made a shift, and that shift was from the four parables to the four miracles in 435 through 543, where Jesus shows his power and authority over the four Ds, over danger, demons, disease, and death. And it's these last two that we're going to focus on today, Jesus showing his power and authority over disease and death. And so we are going to do so by enjoying another Mark sandwich. Are you hungry for a sandwich this morning? Uh, Again, uh, a blue heron sandwich to offer you today. Um, What do you need to make a sandwich? You need bread on top, you need meat in the middle, and then another piece of bread on the bottom. Well, as we learned a few weeks ago, in Mark's usage, the sandwich is technically known as bracketing, and it's a literary device where two related stories are used to make a similar point. All right? Two related stories are used to make a similar point. So if you remember, sandwich number one in Mark was in 320 through 35. We had the top piece of bread, which was opposition from Jesus's family. You had the meat, which was opposition from religious leaders. And then we went back to the bottom piece of bread, which was opposition from Jesus's family again. Well, in today's passage, 521 through 43, also being a sandwich, The top piece of bread is Jesus and Jairus, part one. The meat is Jesus and the bleeding woman. And then the bottom piece of bread is Jesus and Jairus, part two. And as was the case with sandwich number one, these stories are intentionally woven together because they make a similar point. And they make a stronger point as they complement one another. And once again, due to the fact that this is a long passage today, we're going to work through it verse by verse rather than reading it as a whole. So let's, let's begin with that top piece of bread to our sandwich, which is verses 21 through 24, Jesus and Jairus, part one. So verse 21 begins like this. It says, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. All right. Where's Waldo? Where's Jesus? Let's locate Jesus on the map. Okay. So if you remember, He has gone from Capernaum to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. That's the blue circle, the number one, as he went from Capernaum to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. That's when his disciples experienced the earthquake megastorm. And then when they landed, they experienced the deliverance of the man with the legion of demons. Now, number two, the red circle... Um, Jesus is going to go back across the lake, back to his ministry headquarters in Galilee, which is Capernaum. 
That's red circle number two. And then next week, just to give you a little bit of a foreshadowing, he's going to travel from Capernaum to his hometown of Nazareth, and that's the orange, number three, as he goes back home to Nazareth. Well, for today, having arrived back in his ministry headquarters in Galilee of Capernaum, a great crowd followed him, it says, which is quite a contrast from what he experienced on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, where people, how how did they respond to Jesus after the man with the legion of demons was delivered? What did they say to him? Go away. They begged him to leave. But here at Capernaum, people beg Jesus to stay and perform more miracles, do more of that stuff. What was the difference in the reception? I think largely it's because this is a Jewish audience in Capernaum. It's a Jewish audience, and they're desperately hoping for a political Messiah to come and deliver them from the Romans. And the more that they hear about Jesus, the more that they see the miracles, the more that they think, ah, this could be the one. And so they desperately want Jesus to stay and to fulfill their expectations for what they want him to be. And so as word got around about these miracles, they thought, he just might be our Messiah. Verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet. Now, what is a ruler of a synagogue? It's not a priest. It's not a rabbi. Rather, the ruler of the synagogue was more of an administrator, more of an administrative role who took care of things like the scrolls, the facility, the scheduling of visiting rabbis to come and to teach. That was a synagogue ruler, typically three to seven of them in any given synagogue. And as such, this man Jairus, as a synagogue ruler, would have been very highly respected in the Jewish community and considered part of the religious elite, friendly with people like the Pharisees. How did the Pharisees feel about Jesus? Hated him, wanted to kill him. And so you could probably lump Jairus together with that group of religious elites who want to do away with Jesus because they saw him as a threat. The common people said, hey, this could be our political Messiah. The religious elite said, he's a threat to our way of life. And so Jairus probably in that religious elite. And yet, here he is, falling at the feet of of Jesus. Now the question is why? Why would he break ranks and come and fall at the feet of Jesus? We find out in verse 23. It says, he implored Jesus earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And now we get it, don't we? It's the love of a desperate father for his dying daughter that caused Jairus to set aside his other allegiances and to humbly fall at the feet of Jesus. Now, how did Jairus know that Jesus had the power to heal his daughter? Well, remember Mark chapter 1, Jesus was in a synagogue in Capernaum, and he delivered a sermon, first of all, but then he delivered a demonized man from spiritual bondage, and it's quite possible, if not likely, that this was Jairus's synagogue. And so he had experienced and seen the power of Jesus at work before, as we learned in Mark chapter 1. 
And so, how will Jesus respond to this man at his feet, begging for Jesus to come and to minister to his daughter? Verse 24 simply says, And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. That's great news for Jairus, that Jesus is going to go with him to his home to minister to his dying daughter. It would seem as if he's home free, right? But that's where the meat of the sandwich comes in. There is an interruption. Anybody like to be interrupted? But sometimes it's in those interruptions where the God things happen, right? Here's the meat, chapter 5, verses 25 through 34. We move from Jairus, part 1, to Jesus and the bleeding woman. Look with me at verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This is a woman in a very, very poor state of affairs. Let's spend a few minutes talking about her condition. She has a, no other way to say it, she has a nonstop menstrual cycle with all the accompanying symptoms, a continual flow for 12 years. And that's bad physically. I mean, that takes a toll on a person physically, but it was even worse religiously and socially. Here's why. You see, according to Jewish law, a menstruating woman was considered to be unclean, and according to the law, she must wait seven days until after her cycle had finished before having contact with others or joining in public worship. Well, when did this poor woman's cycle end? It never did. So think about it. This woman has not been able to worship or live in close proximity in relationship for over a decade grew worse. You see, in her desperation, and we can see why she would have been desperate, she spent all her money on an attempt to find a physical remedy for her situation. And they did offer some physical remedies in that day, but they were largely based in superstition, and they were crazy. Listen to this. Um, One prescribed remedy for this condition was to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a lined bag in summer and a cotton bag in winter. It gets worse. Another proposed treatment for someone with this condition is to carry a barley corn from the dung of a she-donkey. Um, I wish I were making this up, but these were instructions given in the Jewish commentary known as the Talmud. And each of these remedies must have come with a particular cost, leaving the woman destitute. So now she's broken physically, relationally, religiously, and financially. And so we read in verse 27, uh, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now, she's breaking a whole bunch of rules, isn't she? As an unclean woman, she is not to be around people, let alone touching them. And technically, she has made every person that she has touched ceremonially unclean. So in her desperation... She hoped to secretly touch Jesus by faith, to touch the garment, and then to sneak away and to be anonymous. Now, 
If you're Jesus, how would you respond to this woman and her inappropriate behavior? Verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. There's Mark's favorite word again. What? Immediately. Emphasizing the action of Jesus. And in this case, it was the action of healing a desperate, broken woman whose intent, her plan was to secretly touch Jesus and then to remain anonymous. But Jesus had something more for her. He had something better for her than just physical healing. So watch what happens in verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Now I ask you this question. Did Jesus really not know who touched him? No, he knew. Jesus knows. He's just setting up a teachable moment for his disciples. But even more importantly, watch this. He's setting up a transformational moment for the woman. He wanted to draw her out. He did not want her to remain anonymous and just walk away with a physical healing. He had something much more to give to her. Now, while we're here, think about Jairus for a moment. How's he feeling? Impatient? Frustrated? My daughter's dying. The crowds are already slowing us down. And now this woman comes. They're supposed to be making haste to go save the life of this little girl. And now Jesus stops to talk to this woman. Well, Jairus is going to have to wait a little longer. For it says in verse 33, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. And told him the whole truth. She is so busted. Probably thinking that she's in big trouble. Her efforts to touch Jesus secretly and to remain anonymous, they've they've failed. And now she's going to have to face the music of her inappropriate behavior. The consequences of breaking the Jewish law and spreading her uncleanness to others. But watch this. This is so beautiful. Rather than Jesus giving her a reprimand, you know what Jesus gave her? A name. A name. Look at verse 34. And he said to her, daughter. Daughter. No reprimand. No punishment. Rather, a name. Daughter. And you want to hear something really, really, really cool? This is the only time recorded in the New Testament that Jesus calls anyone daughter. And for whom does he reserve this title? A desperate, unclean woman. And so that's the reason that we've given this sermon the title, A Tale of Two Daughters. You see, Jairus has a daughter, but now we see that Jesus also has a daughter. And he goes on to say to his daughter in the second half of verse 34, he says, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now there's something that doesn't show up in the English here that the Greek word that's used for made well is actually sozo. Now why is that significant? Because sozo is the normal New Testament word for saving from sin. Spiritual salvation. 
So there's so much more that is happening here than just a physical healing. This woman is also being healed spiritually, and by faith, she is now a daughter of the king. And so, in our Mark sandwich, we've had that top piece of bread, we've had the meat, now we go to the bottom piece of bread, Jesus and Jairus, part two. Look at verse 35. It says, while he was still speaking to the woman, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now again, put yourself in Jairus' sandals. How are you feeling? Well, first of all, you're crushed. You're despondent, inconsolable. But you're probably also angry, right? Who are you angry at? You're probably angry at the woman who slowed Jesus down. And, you know, just to be blunt and callous about it, you know, he could reason that this woman has been in this condition for 12 years. She can't wait another 30 minutes for the purpose of saving the life of my little girl. I imagine that Jairus' thoughts and emotions were similar to that of Mary and Martha at the graveside of Lazarus when they said, Jesus, if you would have been here, our brother would not have died. Well, it appeared to Jairus that, well, the story's over. But it wasn't. For we read in verse 36, it says, But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Believe. Those are profound words, not only for Jairus, but for us. If Jairus were to focus on his circumstances, which is natural, but what would be the natural response to focusing on those circumstances? Fear. Understandable. But Jesus invited Jairus to lift up his head and to focus not on the circumstances, but on what? On Jesus. And the natural response to focusing on Jesus is faith. And so you see, it really all comes back to what we choose to focus on. Circumstances or Jesus. What we focus on will determine whether we live by fear or by faith. Can I ask you, what are you focused on today? Are you focused on your circumstances? And I... Um, there are certain seasons where as a pastor, it, it's more overwhelming than others to, to just walk with you all as a congregation with your stuff, your burdens. And I know that some of you, your circumstances right now are just horrendous. They're heavy. They're hard. So I get it. I get it. It's easy and natural for us to focus on our circumstances. But when we do that, it, we just spiral into fear and anxiety and depression and hopelessness. Jesus, like with Jairus, he invites us to lift up our heads and say, hey, focus on me. Focus on me. The story isn't over. Jesus is up to something here, and we see it begin to unfold in verse 37. It says, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that we see Jesus identify this inner circle of Peter, James, and John. You remember, these men also accompanied Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had some special experiences with Jesus that the others did not. Um, these were his closest followers. 
And they ultimately had strategic roles among the apostles. And now, why do you think Jesus would just say, hey, you three, you three come with me? Why would he do that here? I think there's at least three reasons. Number one, I think there's a practical reason. Um, They're headed for a small house with a small room. There's only a limited number of space. And so, hey, you three come here. The rest of you need to stay behind. There's a judicial reason that Jesus invites these three to come because in that culture, it was required in a court of law that an event be verified by two or three witnesses. Here we have the witnesses. Number three, I think there's an instructional reason. These three were ready and prepared to learn from Jesus and then to teach the others. And it's also possible that these three were noted for their extraordinary faith. And faith plays an important role in this tale of two daughters. Well, what exactly is the scene that Jesus, Peter, James, and John are walking into? Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, they had some interesting traditions, some interesting ways of grieving in that culture. They would actually hire professional mourners, People who made a living by just kind of like going from tragedy to tragedy and, and they, would, you know, they would be hired mourners and they would rend their clothes, they would tear their hair and they would wail. And I imagine a person such as Jairus, being as important as he was, there was probably an extra large group of hired mourners here. Further, they would also hire flute players to come and play these really sad, discordant songs to kind of contribute to the wailing. And now, I don't mean to say that there wasn't genuine grief there, because there was, but they kind of orchestrated it to an even greater intensity by hiring these people to come and to make a big spectacle of the grief. It was in this environment that Jesus said in verse 39. When he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, is Jesus being delusional here? He is not denying that the child literally had no pulse. The child was dead, just like Lazarus was dead. And Jesus said a similar thing to the disciples about Lazarus. Hey, he's asleep. What he is saying is he's looking at the situation through eyes of faith and what will happen, what will come to pass. And so verse 40, how'd the crowd respond? They laughed at him. They laughed at him. This was not the laughter of humor. This was the laughter of scorn, of ridicule, reminding us that those who see through eyes of faith and live by faith, guess what? You are going to be ridiculed by the world. You are going to be laughed at. Graduates, when you walk in to your job, when you walk into school, you're likely, if you are faithful to what is true in God's word, you're going to be laughed at. You're going to be ridiculed. It's part of the cost of discipleship. It's part of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus himself was laughed at. His disciples were laughed at. And the tragedy in the story is that those who laughed at Jesus, guess what? They missed the miracle. Here's why. Verse 40. He put them all outside. Now that's a little bit too gentle. In the Greek, it's ekbalo, which means he kicked them out. He threw them out. There's some force into this. Jesus was not having it. He was not having their lack of faith. He was not having their scorn and their ridicule. You know, faith is contagious, is it not? 
But so is lack of faith. Faith being contagious, that's part of the reason that we are called to gather together and to bring contagious faith with us, that we can infect one another with our faith. But also be careful. You hang around with faithless people, that is also contagious. So it says in the last part of verse 40, Jesus took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, there it is, the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. So, Remember all that weeping that was going on in the room previously? Now there's more weeping, but it's a different kind of weeping. What kind of weeping is this? These are tears of joy, amazement, thanksgiving, perhaps tears of adoration as they recognize that they're in the very presence of God Almighty. This Jesus who had earlier demonstrated power and authority over danger, demons, and disease now demonstrates his power and authority over death. Just as it says in Romans 4.17, Jesus is he who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not Exist. And in the presence of this power and authority, it was certainly appropriate, just like the disciples in the boat. When they saw that power and authority, when the storm was stilled, they said, oh, who is this? And they were actually in fear. Now we have people astonished because they see power and authority over disease and over death. Surely they would go out and tell everyone what had happened, but then the passage ends curiously with Jesus giving these instructions in verse 43. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, I like that give her something to eat part. It kind of shows Jesus' compassion. Hey, the girl's hungry. Who knows how long the girl had been in this? She needs to eat. She needs her physical strength. Jesus cares. Jesus cares about your physical well-being. But why would Jesus strictly charge the others not to say anything about this? Well, I think because one of two things were bound to happen. Number one, as Jesus' enemies learn about this, what's going to be their response? They're going to be even more motivated to kill him. And his time had not yet come. And then as his fans hear about this, what's going to be their response? Oh, even more. This is our Messiah. This is the one who's going to come and set us free from the Romans. Let's go set him up as king. And Jesus is like, no, my time has not yet come. And that's not even the purpose for this chapter in my ministry. So Jesus wanted to just quietly slip out of town. Ultimately, word's going to get out, but he wanted to get out of town. And next week, we'll see he heads to Nazareth. Well, as we put the tale of two daughters together, this, I found this fascinating. There's some interesting points of connection. Maybe you made some of them. Let's look at them on the screen. Jairus was wealthy. The woman was poor. Jairus was respected. The woman was rejected. Jairus was honored. The woman was ashamed. Jairus was a synagogue ruler. The woman was a synagogue outcast. Jairus had a 12-year-old child. The woman had a 12-year-old malady. Jairus had 12 years of joy with this child while the woman had 12 years of sorrow in her sickness. Jairus came publicly to Jesus. The woman came secretly. 
There was a delayed healing for Jairus' daughter. The woman experienced an immediately healing. In Jairus, the healing of his daughter was intended to be secret, but for the woman, it was intended to be public. Isn't that interesting? And you can kind of see the reason for the sandwich, why these are interwoven together. Now, um, I think it's important that we wrestle with a very difficult question this morning, and we're not going to have the time to give it the it's just due. But boy, I was heavy with this question this week as we, I mean, these are happy stories, right? Hey, hey, um, Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead. Um, the, uh, uh, the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, she's healed. That's great for the woman. That's great for Jairus and his daughter. But what about when we don't get the healing? Or the resurrection? What about when the healing doesn't come? When our loved ones suffer and die, when we have cried out to Jesus, just like Jairus' father did, but Jesus doesn't answer the way he answered Jairus. Did Jesus fail? Did our faith fail? I think in light of that question in the text this morning, there are four truths about which we need to be reminded today. And again, I, I don't want to oversimplify this. I don't want this to just seem like cold theology, but these are truths that we need to overcome the lies of Satan that he will whisper in our ears. And the first is this. His ways are higher than our ways. They just are. And we won't likely this side of heaven understand. We're going to have to live in some tension of not getting answers to all of the questions that we would like to have answers to right now. His ways are higher than our ways. We, we think we know best, and we have, but we have limited eyesight. We have limited knowledge. God has unlimited sight, unlimited vision, unlimited knowledge. He has higher ways than our ways. And so what we do in response to this, we trust God in his sovereignty that he does have a purpose and a plan even in our pain because his ways are higher than our ways. And not only are his ways higher, but I want to encourage you with this today. They're also good. His ways are also good, which leads to the second truth that any question about God's goodness was settled at the cross. Any question that we have, is God good? I mean, it would be just like Satan in our pain, in our grief, to whisper in our ear, to chatter at us and say, hey, maybe God isn't really good after all. Maybe he isn't who he says he is. Maybe God is really distant and cruel and uncaring. Maybe he doesn't care at all. But the answer to all of those false accusations is the cross. Reminding us that for God so loved the world, for God so loved you, for God so loved me, that he gave his only son. Only a good and loving God would sacrifice his only son for sinful humanity. And instantly, Satan's accusations about God's goodness are silenced. It is because of the cross that we are able to trust that God is working out all things, all things, even the painful things for our good and for his glory, even and especially in our pain when we don't understand. Truth number three, we get excited about earthly healing, and we should. However, 
All earthly healing is temporal. We've talked about this before. All earthly healing is temporal. I don't want to be a wet blanket, but you know that little girl that was just raised from the dead? She ultimately died again. I don't know how old she was when she died. She might have been an old woman. I don't know what the circumstances were, but a day came when she died again. Just like Lazarus at some point died again. Reminding us that as as awesome as earthly healing is when it happens, and it is awesome, it is temporal. It doesn't last. Such is the nature of having physical bodies made of dust living under a curse of sin in the sin-infected world in which we live. These bodies get sick and they die. Just as all of creation is sick and is groaning in anticipation of the return of Jesus to come and make everything right. All earthly healing is temporal. But this is what makes the fourth point so significant, and it is this. One day, our healing will be eternal. One day, our healing will be eternal. Jesus will return and the power and authority over danger, demons, disease, and death that he demonstrated, he gave us a taste of it in his first coming to say, hey, this is me. It really is me. When he comes back, it will be fully applied to all of creation and things will be new. And we will live in the reality of Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And it is this truth that enables us to be those who grieve, yes, but grieve with hope. Knowing that death here on earth is not the end, it is but the beginning. And so... What about when the healing doesn't come? And I know some of you went to funerals this week. It's very heavy on your hearts. We need to be reminded his ways are higher than our ways. Any question about God's goodness was settled at the cross. All earthly healing is temporal. One day our healing will be eternal. And so again, that's not an effort to just give a Sunday school answer to the pain that we experience, but it is an effort to speak truth into those areas where Satan is so prone to whisper lies. Let's now shift to, really quickly, application. How should we then live? Three points, all of which come actually from the meat of the sandwich, the healing of the bleeding woman. Point number one is this. Tell the whole truth. I'm so sick and tired of living in a culture where hardly anybody tells the truth. And even Christians. We shade the truth. We twist the truth. We tell part of the truth. Look back at verse 31, where Jesus called out the woman after touching him. The, or I'm sorry, verse 33. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. This is the key to spiritual freedom. 
full and complete transparency as we confess sins to God and to trusted brothers and sisters, not sugarcoating it, not whitewashing it, telling the whole truth about it, not just some of it, but all of it. Not sanitizing it, trying to put our best self forward, but giving God and perhaps a few others the, all the gory details. Why? Because it's when we tell Jesus the whole truth, truth that he knows anyway, doesn't he? It's when we take that humble posture, that humble position, then we receive his grace to be set free from our spiritual bondage. The word of God says, humble yourselves before the Lord then he will lift you up. A lot of people down here living in the muck because they won't humble themselves. They won't tell the whole truth. A lot of believers, you're not set free from your spiritual bondage because you're not willing to humble yourself. Is that going to be humiliating? Probably. But as we've seen, that's part of what it is to walk with Jesus. Are you telling Jesus and others the whole truth? That's the key to being set free. Next, turn to the great physician. Turn to the great physician. This point comes to us from verse 26, where it says, Of the woman, she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Where are all my medical professionals this morning? You're afraid to raise your hand right now. This is not about you, okay? This is not about you. We thank God for you, okay? This is about all that superstitious stuff that was going on back then. The bleeding woman tried all kinds of other, quote, physicians to meet her need, but they all left her wanting and broke, worse than when she started. Now, here's the application for us. We have six souls. We have six souls, and we turn to all kinds of physicians, don't we? We turn to all kinds. We turn to substance. We turn to alcohol. We turn to marijuana. We turn to um, pornography. We turn to all kinds of things. We turn to busyness. We turn to entertainment and pleasure. We turn to religion. All kinds of other physicians to deal with our sick souls, and they leave us wanting and broke. And like the woman, we're worse than when we started. There's only one place to go. That is the great physician, Jesus himself, who is willing and able to heal our sin-sick souls. We must turn to Jesus as the great physician alone. And part of that turning to him, listen carefully, is back to point number one, telling him the whole truth about those other physicians that we've sought after. Because that's idolatry. We turn to Jesus alone. So we tell the whole truth. We turn to the great physician. Thirdly, we touch him in faith. We touch him in faith. Look at verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now think about this. In that massive throng, that jostling crowd, how many people do you think bumped into Jesus? Lots. How many people got healed? One. What was the difference? Augustine said it this way. He said, flesh presses, faith touches. 
There was lots of flesh pressed in against Jesus that day. Lots of jostling, lots of bumping, but only one touched him in faith. And as it relates to us, commentator Dave Guzik, he said this. He says, you can come to church week after week and bump into Jesus. But that isn't the same as reaching out to touch him in faith. That may describe some of you today. You've been coming to church for a long time, but you've just been bumping into Jesus. You come for your weekly bump, been content with that, wondering, though, why you're not living the abundant, victorious life that God's word promises that Jesus said he came to bring. Perhaps it's because you have not reached out and touched him in faith with humble desperation and said, I surrender all. Jeremiah 29, 13 says it very simply. God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me half-heartedly. No, that's not what your Bible says. When you seek me with all your heart. That's what the bleeding woman did, isn't it? Wholehearted seeking, touched him in faith. What was true for her can be true for you. And so how should we then live, tell the whole truth, turn to the great physician and touch him in faith? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this Mark sandwich. Thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you for how applicable it is to us thousands of years later. God, it is as real to us today as it was then. God, would you give us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the conviction that we need to know where it needs to be applied to our lives specifically, and then also, God, the power to follow through in obedience. Thank you that you are alive and well, and though there are many times we don't understand why you do the things that you do, we want to declare right now that we trust you. We trust in your sovereignty, your purpose, your plan, And we trust in your goodness, which was proven by the giving of your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We love you. We speak against the lies of the enemy. They have no place in our hearts and in our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. amen.